Last time we spoke about the incredible Battle of Midway, Admiral Yamamoto had devised a vast and fatally complex plan to invade the Midway Atoll, while Admiral Chester Nimitz pulled a straightforward and simple counterplan. During the battle, Admiral Choichi Nagumo faced a dilemma, and it would end up costing the IGN greatly. Four Japanese fleet carriers and a heavy cruiser were sunk, several other cruisers and destroyers damaged. 292 aircraft were destroyed, and over 3,000 Japanese were now dead. The Americans won this incredible victory at the cost of Yorktown and Hammond, both sunk by a single submarine. 145 US aircraft were destroyed, and 307 Americans were dead. Yet, despite all of this, the IGN was still the strongest naval force in the Pacific. The Battle of Midway blunted the tip of the Japanese spear, but it was not broken. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the Aleutian Islands campaign and that of Alaska. This episode is the Invasion of Alaska. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more history-related content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where you can find a few videos going all the way back to the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way until the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Check it out, it means a lot to me. You know what? We have sporadically talked about the Aleutian Islands during this entire series. If you recall, after the Doolittle Raid, it was believed by some of the Japanese High Command that the aircraft that hit the Japanese home islands had come from the Aleutians. Hell, many of the captured American pilots parroted this idea as a false story to hide the fact that the USS Hornet had been the origin of their launches. Then Admiral Yamamoto's Operation MI the operation against the Midway Atoll was contaminated by the Aleutian Islands. All the way back on April the 5th, the Naval General Staff gave tentative approval of Admiral Yamamoto's Midway offensive, but critical details remained unresolved, including the most important one, the date of the operation. Opponents to the plan still held hope of killing it through a shrewd use of delaying tactics. What typically ends up happening during such matters were sketchy compromises being made. Rather than simply choosing one course of action and ruling decisively against another, the regime gave all parties, such as the Navy and the Army, part of what they wanted. At the insistence of the Naval General Staff, a second operation in the Aleutians was tacked onto the Midway Plan, involving the capture of two islands and a raid against Dutch Harbor of Unalaska Island. On April 16th of 1942, the General Headquarters issued Directive Number 86, which laid out a sequence of objectives for the next three months of the war. In May, they would seize Port Moresby, 
In June, they would capture Midway and the Aleutians. Then in July, it was to be New Caledonia and Fiji. On May 5th, just two days before the Battle of Coral Sea, orders for the Midway and Aleutian operations had been disseminated throughout the IGN. Naval Order No. 18, under the signature of Admiral Osami Nagano, instructed Admiral Yamamoto to carry out the occupation of Midway Island and key points in the Western Aleutians in cooperation with the Army. It was to be the largest naval amphibious operation ever attempted in the history of naval warfare. It also split the IGN forces into five largely independent tactical groups operating throughout the vast North Pacific battle zone, from the icy outer islands of the Aleutian Archipelago to the Midway Atoll over 2,000 miles south. The Aleutians' campaign, quite frankly, fucked up the Midway operation. By the 2nd of April of 1942, Captain Komieto Kuroshima had transformed Admiral Yamamoto's basic idea into an intricate war plan that involved almost 200 ships maneuvering in close cooperation over a battlefield stretching 2,000 miles. On the face of it, the objective was to capture Midway and the Western Aleutians. These islands would become key points in a new outer perimeter stretching from Kiska in the north through Midway and Wake all the way down to Port Moresby. Patrol planes based on all three of these islands could detect any enemy task force attempting to pierce the Empire's enormous defensive perimeter. But the seizure of the Midway Atoll was always a secondary importance to Admiral Yamamoto. The entire point of the entire dam operation from the get-go was actually to force a decisive naval battle and wipe out the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Now going way far back to the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, this banned military bases and fortifications from being built across the Pacific, and this included the Kuril Islands and the Western Aleutians. This meant that the American northern flank was extremely vulnerable, with such people as Antony Dimond stating, Alaska could be taken almost overnight by a hostile force. By 1940, with the threat of war with Japan looming on the horizon, the American government begun efforts to fortify and reinforce Alaska with the allocation of $350 million, the 4th Regiment, and the construction of military bases across the territory. Under the leadership of Lieutenant General John Dewitt, the Western Defense Command would be established to protect the Pacific Coast, nominating the unorthodox Colonel Simon Buckner Jr. to command the defense of Alaska. Buckner was promoted to Brigadier General in 1940 and assigned to fortify and protect Alaska as the Army's Alaska Defense Command. He got promoted to Major General in August of 1941, and like many other American commanders, feared the Japanese would use the Aleutian Islands as bases to strike the U.S. West Coast. As noted by Lieutenant Paul Bishop, General Simon Buckner Jr. said to us that the Japanese would have the opportunity to set up air bases in the Aleutians, making coastal cities like Anchorage, Seattle, and San Francisco vulnerable within range to attack by their bombers. The fear of that scenario was real at the time because the Japanese were nearly invincible and ruthless in Asia and the Pacific. We knew 
that they bombed China relentlessly and by surprise on Pearl Harbor. So we had to make sure it wouldn't happen here in the continental US. Similar to what the Germans did over London and Coventry. Buckner's main priority was the construction of an adequate air force, and in order to obtain it, well, he began to illegally build airfields in the Aleutians with embezzled funds. Yeah, it was pretty unorthodox. He succeeded and built up five operational airfields and gathered 22,000 army personnel. The U.S. Navy, meanwhile, only had a few World War I-era destroyers, requisitioned from the U.S. Coast Guard and cutters and some S-boat submarines. For aircraft, they had a small force of terribly outdated P-36 Hawks and some P-40 Warhawks, with a few B-18 Bolos. Literally the bottom of the barrel kind of stuff. Then, after Pearl Harbor, Buckner went to town, building more and more, and soon boasted 14 operational military bases with 30 operational airfields supporting 45,000 army personnel including four infantry regiments, three coast artillery regiments, and a tank company. In addition, Brigadier William Butler was put in command of the newly formed 11th Air Force, which received over 95 fighters and 46 bombers. A ton of outdated aircraft, to be sure, but a formidable force nonetheless. As for the Japanese, Operation AL was assigned to the Northern Naval Force of Operation MI, led by Admiral Hosogaya Boshiro of the 5th Fleet. His main fleet consisted of the heavy cruiser Nachi, destroyers Ikazuchi and Inazuma, two oilers and three cargo ships. Alongside this, he had a seaplane tender force consisting of the Kimikawa Maru, the destroyer Shiokaze, led by Captain Ujuki Kiechi. There was also a distant covering force, led by Vice Admiral Takasu Shiro, consisting of the battleships Issei, Hyuga, Fuso, and Yamashiro, light cruisers Oi and Kitakami, and the destroyers Asagiri, Yugiri, Shirakumo, Amagiri, Yumekaze, Yamakaze, Kawakaze, Suzukaze, Iriaki, Yugiro, Shiguro, and Shiratasuya. And after all of that, he would still have at his disposal the second Kidobutai, led by Rear Admiral Kakara Kukuji, who commanded light carriers Ryujo, carrying 12 Zero fighters and 18 Kate torpedo bombers, and Junyo, carrying 18 Zero fighters and 15 Val dive bombers. The heavy cruisers Maya and Takeo, destroyers Akibono, Ushio, and Sazamani, and an oiler. On top of all of this, there were still two invasion fleets consisting of the Atu and Adak invasion force, which had the light cruiser Abukuma, destroyers Wakabe, Enohi, Hatsushimo, Hatsusara, and a mine layer, under Rear Admiral Omori Sentaro, and the Kiska invasion force, which held the light cruisers Kiso, Tama, two auxiliary cruisers, three minesweepers, and the destroyers Hibiki, Akosuki, and Hokaze of Captain Ono Takeji. And just when you thought I was done, there was also a submarine detachment force commanded by Rear Admiral Yamazaki Shigeki, consisting of six submarines. And the reason I painfully wrote all this into the script, and I'm now regretting it, and had to say all that to you, was just to show the pure scale of how many ships were involved in this operation that could have been involved in the Midway operation. 
So yeah, the Japanese had set aside a, a few spare ships here and there for the uh, Operation AL. My god, just imagine how furious Yamamoto must have been when this all had been attached to his plan. Now, as we learned during the Battle of Midway episode, Station Hypo had cracked many Japanese naval codes and concluded the Aleutians Islands campaign was just a diversion. So Admiral Nimitz decided to send the bulk of his forces to ambush the enemy at Midway. Rear Admiral Robert Theobald's Task Force 8 was sent to intercept the Aleutian force under the personal recommendation of Admiral King. Task Force 8 was built around the heavy cruisers Indianapolis and Louisville, with the light cruisers Nashville, Honolulu, and St. Louis. There was also 13 destroyers, 6 submarines, some gunboats, seaplane tenders, cutters, and a few minesweepers. Theobald and Buckner were to work side by side to oppose the Japanese landings and reverse any gains made by the enemy. On May the 25th, Admiral Hosogawa's northern force departed Ominato Naval Base, with three transports leaving Paramushiro, carrying 1,260 Japanese Marines under the command of Commander Mukai Nifumi and another 1,200 IGA of the 201st Independent Battalion charged with the occupation of Atu and Adak Islands. U.S. intelligence successfully predicted Kiska and Atu were to be the first targets of Operation AL, but Admiral Theobald disregarded the intelligence, believing instead the islands were simply too worthless to warrant invasion, and instead chose to defend Dutch Harbor. Around 5,000 soldiers, airmen, and support staff would be at Dutch Harbor acting as a garrison. By the night of June the 2nd, Kakuda's carriers got to their launch point, 165 miles due south of Dutch Harbor. At 2 a.m. on June the 3rd, as Admiral Yamamoto was poised for a very bitter defeat at Midway, further south, Kakuta launched 46 aircraft. 15 torpedo bombers and 3 zeros from Ryujo, and 15 dive bombers and 13 zeros from Junyo, although one torpedo bomber crashed on takeoff. They were commanded by Lieutenant Abe Zenji. Lieutenant Abe Zenji worried his pilots would be unable to return to the carriers due to the extreme weather. There was, after all, a very thick fog, and the cold was intense. This type of weather is known as Williwa, a powerful Aleutian gale wind. The weather scrambled their flying formation, leaving planes to have to make their own trek in their own individual ways. This led their flight to suddenly be stopped when the experienced Abe, who had flown missions against Pearl Harbor and during the Indian Ocean raid, detected that the overcast was far too low to allow for dive bombing. Thus, 15 vowels and 11 zeros had to abort the strike leaving only 19 aircraft under the command of Lieutenant Samajima Hiriochi to execute the first hit on Dutch Harbor. The Japanese expected to catch the Americans completely by surprise, but as we all know, Station Hypo had already provided the U.S. defenders with the intelligence they needed, and Catalina PBYs were spotting the Japanese fleet as it approached the Aleutians. On top of all of this, USS Harris, a seaplane tender, spotted the incoming Japanese aircraft on its radar and alerted Dutch Harbor on Unalaska Island. Dutch Harbor's anti-aircraft crews quickly prepared while communication personnel sent an alert to the other two U.S. bases in the Aleutians, that being Cold Bay and Umnak. Unfortunately, Umnak would never receive this signal because of a jerry-rigged communication system. Cold Bay, however, would dispatch P-40 Warhawks within four minutes of the call. 
As the gale storm abated briefly, the Japanese Zero fighters found themselves met by P-40 Warhawks, anti-aircraft guns, coastal batteries, and much more. They swooped in first, strafing a PBY trying to take off as a second PBY managed to shoot down a Zero from below as it was swooping down upon it. Anti-aircraft guns from the vessels within the harbor were frantically firing, but this did little to dissuade the bombers who dropped their loads over the Fort Myers installations. 16 bombs smashed 3 warehouses, 2 barracks, 3 Quonset huts, killed 25 Americans and wounded another 25. A single 1,000 pound bomb hit the historic Russian Orthodox Church there, completely demolishing it. The next 6 bombs were dropped over Mount Baliho, not achieving too much damage other than one army casualty. And the last six bombs knocked out a radio transmitter, destroyed another Kwanzaa hut, and killed another civilian. The final six hit a fire watcher's bunker, an army truck, and some naval facilities at Powerhouse Hill. The Japanese thought they had flattened the base, but the hit on the barracks represented their sole military triumph as most of the damage achieved was superficial, and the vessels within the harbor remained untouched. The Zeros departed just as the P-40 Warhawks from Cold Bay arrived to the scene. It turned out the storm had greatly hindered the American pilots. The Japanese pilots feared they would all crash right into the icy rampant ocean, but only one Zero would be shot down by anti-aircraft gunfire. The rest returned safely to the Rijo. With the first strike concluded, Lieutenant Hirochi led his torpedo bombers northwards, barely missing the incoming P-40 Warhawks from Colt Bay by just 10 minutes. Upon receiving reports there were American destroyers at Dutch Harbor, Admiral Kukata decided to launch a second wave of 15 Vals and 6 Zeros from Junyo, and 6 Kates and 6 Zeros from Ryujo. Unfortunately, the intense cold and crazy gale weather iced up the plane's carburetors, forcing them all to return back to their respective carriers. In addition, four float planes had been launched from Maya and Takeo, and they were discovered by Omnak's Warhawk Force, led interestingly by Major Jack Chenault, the son of the Flying Tigers leader. Two of the float planes would be lost in the struggle. Now, during the course of this entire mess, the American and Japanese pilots were searching for another through howling storms, and occasionally shooting another down. Eventually, Kukata's carriers were spotted by two PBYs, but their radio transmissions never reached Dutch Harbor as they were shot down too quickly. By this point, Admiral Kukata had to turn southeast to support the invasion of Adak, and he was quite disappointed by the Dutch Harbor strike, so he decided he would launch a second attack instead. On the morning of June the 4th, the Americans were hunting the Japanese carriers for hours, but could only establish contact for around a few minutes at a time of day filled by howling willowas, powerful squalls, and very dense fog. Eventually, two PBYs spotted Kukata's location again, but this time, they managed to get a report out before being shot down. Boy oh boy, those poor PBY pilots. This led six B-26 marauders to take off from Umnak with another six from Colt Bay, with the objective to strike the Japanese carriers. Yet, as you might have already guessed, nearly all of them were unable to fight the heavy weather and had to abort their mission. All of them, except for Captain George Thornbro, who fought the stormy weather and found the Rijo. He dropped one of his torpedoes, but it smashed into a huge wave trout, which messed up the pathing alignment, missing Ryujo. 
Thornbro then wheeled around, returning to Cold Bay, rearming with 500-pound bombs, and flew into the furious darkness of midnight to hunt for the carriers again. The Americans would later find his wrecked plane on Rocky Shore, 40 miles away, several months later. Now, if that ain't proof of dedication to one's service, I mean, my God, with the weather conditions, which I can only imagine, I'm from Quebec, Canada, and it gets really bad here when it comes to snow conditions, but to do what he was doing at midnight? Woof. During the afternoon of June the 4th, two B-17s alongside Captain Robert Meal's B-26s from Umnak found Kakuta's carriers, but failed to make any hits. At 4 p.m., all preparations were finally ready and Kakuta launched a second wave against Dutch Harbor using nine Kates, six Zeros from Ryujo, led by Lieutenant Yamagami, and ten Vowels and five Zeros from Junyo, led by Lieutenant Abe. As the second wave was appearing over the horizon, they found a very unfortunate PBY flying patrol, which was quickly shot down. Man, I can't express enough. These poor PBY pilots. They then proceeded to attack Dutch Harbor's facilities. Abe's dive bombers attacked four brand new 6,666 barrel steel fuel tanks, destroying over 750,000 gallons of fuel. They also caught the sight of the merchantman Northwestern, and because of her large size, mistakenly believed her to be a warship, so they all bombed her as well. This attack was followed up by Lieutenant Yamagame's Cates, who blew a hole in the top of the seaplane hangar at Mount Baliho, wrecked an anti-aircraft gun, and severely damaged the ammunition storage before departing at 6.30. All of the fuel explosions were heard at Umnak, over 40 miles away, and the alarm sounded a swarm of their P-40 Warhawks that attacked the invaders, shooting down a Val, but losing two P-40s. Now, while all of this is going on, do not forget, the Battle of Midway is literally beginning to turn into a, well, a shit show for the Japanese. The first Kido Butai is being obliterated, and alarmed by the enormous failure, Admiral Yamamoto orders the second Kido Butai to come rushing down southwards to link up with the last surviving carrier, Hiryu, in a last-ditch effort to destroy the US forces. Unfortunately, Kakuda was already committed to his strike on Dutch Harbor, and he knew that his carriers had to refuel and that they could not hope to reach the Midway Atoll in time for battle. Regardless, Kakuda had the second Kido Butai refuel during the night, and by the morning of June the 5th, they were steaming south. But while en route, Admiral Yamamoto, who at this point was, you know, just beginning to realize the hopelessness of the situation, he finally gave the retreat orders, and this meant that Kakuda was to rendezvous with the Hosogawa fleet. Theobald and Butler believed an invasion of Dutch Harbor was imminent, and sent out tons of scouting operations into the Bering Sea looking for troop ships. Now, all of this mess and movements had dismayed the IGN from invading Adek Island, but Admiral Yamamoto gave the green light to proceed with the invasions of Kiska and Atu. On the night of June the 6th, the 1,260 Japanese Marines, led by Commander Muke Nifumi, landed on Kiska's Reynard Cove and began a rapid advance south towards its harbor. Initially, there was only an American military presence on Kiska of 12 men, who were stationed at the U.S. Navy weather station, two of whom were not present during the invasion. There was also a dog named Explosion. A weird name for a dog. 
By 2.15 a.m. on June the 7th, the Japanese stormed the station, killing two Americans and capturing seven others. They then realized one chief petty officer named William House had escaped, and the Japanese sent out search parties, but they would fail to find him. House would spend 50 days surviving out in the cold on Kiska before succumbing to starvation and, well, the freezing cold, whereupon he surrendered to the Japanese. After 50 days of eating plants and worms, he had lost over 80 pounds. It's a pretty incredible story. Eight of the American prisoners would also manage to escape at one point, fleeing into the mountainside. But they also could only survive a few days, as there was really rough weather conditions at the time. So in the end, they had to come back and surrender. Over in Attu, the other force of 1,140 infantry, led by Major Matsutoshi, Hozumi landed at Holtz Bay, where they faced zero resistance. They did, however, have a hell of a time climbing the snow-covered Holtz Bay-Chichako Harbor Pass. And once they got past that, they found 45 Aleuts and two Americans. Charles Foster Jones, an amateur radio operator and weather reporter, and his wife, Etta, a teacher and a nurse. The Japanese had stormed the Chichago village and they took prisoner 42 Aleuts, who would be later sent to Otaru Hokkaido prison camps, where 16 of them would unfortunately die. I will get back to the horrible story of the Aleuts a bit later. Charles Jones was killed by the Japanese forces immediately because he refused to fix the radio he had destroyed to prevent the occupying troops from using it. His poor wife Etta was taken to the Bund Hotel in Yokohama, which also happened to be housing some captured Australian Rabal nurses. Um, they were captured during the invasion of Rabal in 1942. Admiral Yamamoto then dispatched a fleet to try and help Kukata, consisting of the light carrier Zoiho, battleships Kongo and Hei, and the heavy cruisers Miyoko and Haguro. The carrier Zukaku was also to be sent shortly afterwards to reinforce the second Kido Butai. With the Battle of Midway now done, Admiral Nimitz decided to send the recently repaired carrier Saratoga to rendezvous with Spruance's carriers some 200 miles north of Niha to transfer them some 19 Dauntlesses, 15 Avengers, and Devastators to replenish Task Force 16's aircraft losses from the Battle of Midway. Spruance was then ordered to take Task Force 16 northwards to hunt down the second Kido Butai. But as he was just halfway there, American reconnaissance discovered the Japanese invasions of Kiska and Atu, and feared an incoming attack from land-based Japanese aircraft. So he recalled Spruance's task force. For the next few months, the Japanese reinforced Atu and Kiska with thousands of additional soldiers and brought in materials for building military installations. They would bring a wide array of aircraft, midget submarines, anti-aircraft guns, and other coastal defensive works. In response to the Japanese invasion, the Americans sent the seaplane tender Casco to Atka at June the 10th to serve as PBYs, hoping to use them to strafe and bomb the Japanese positions. When the Japanese found the source of their torment, they would send aircraft to strafe and bomb the hastily evacuated Atlut village at Atka. Now, the U.S. military knew dislodging the Japanese from the Aleutian Islands was going to risk civilian deaths, and they chose to relocate the Alut peoples. The Aleuts, also known as the Unangas, 
are the Aboriginal peoples who inhabit the Aleutian Islands and parts of Alaska. But the evacuation was done in terribly chaotic conditions. By June the 12th, the Japanese had attacked Dutch Harbor twice by air and were building installations on Kiska and Atu. They had detained Aleuts on Atu and were harassing other Aleut villages on Atka. Here is a testimony of Charles Mobley at Atka. I was born on Agatu Island on December the 19th of 1935, when Japanese came to Atu. We went to the church in the morning, and after that was a nice calm day. No wind. We can hear all kinds of noise in the next bay. Engines. And then maybe three, four young teenagers went up the hill to take a look and see what was going on. We were waiting for them to come back down, and then a plane flew over real low. It was a Japanese plane. Me? I didn't know it was Japanese or not, but it was very low. I could see his face when he went by. I was on my way down to the beach because I liked the ocean water all the time. On the way down, this one person, Alec Prosov, I followed him down to the beach, and he walked the beach towards the church, and by this time, we got closer to the church, we hear some noises, different language spoken. We got by the church, and we heard some shooting, and we started running. Alec was running, so I thought he was trying to get away from me, so I ran after him. He was running to the house, and while we're running, I could see mud flying in front of me. They were shooting at Alec but the bullets needed only one more feet to reach Alec, but they didn't. I could see mud popping in front of me. I stop and I look, and then when Alec stopped, he looked right where bullets were coming from, and he started running again. So I kept running after him until he got to house and went under the house. Early in the morning, an American plane goes by. Early, early in the morning. And then I hear a lot of shooting. It happened a couple times. He comes in on the water, and comes up, and go over. I think he was taking pictures. And then I can hear a lot of shooting, and Japanese running all over the place. When I took out my window one morning, a Japanese, I don't know where he was sleeping, but he didn't have no pants on. He was running for his foxhole. I remember he had a hole back of my house there. I saw him jump in there. And then, the Japanese left Atu, and they took us with them in the cargo hold. On June the 12th, the Navy seaplane tenders USS Gillies and USS Helbert at Nazim Bay off Atka received orders from Buckner to remove the Atlut villagers and burn down their village. The US military viewed the buildings as potential assets to the Japanese, and the orders were carried out immediately, while most of the villagers were fishing at a safe distance because of the Japanese attacks. When they came back, everything they had was destroyed, and they were forced onto U.S. boats. Here are some of the testimonies. This one comes from Periscovia Wright, from Atu, given in 1981. In 1942, I was of the age of 17 years old. After the church, I went out to visit. One gunshot was shot. I took my baby, and I went out. The one shot started, and then all of the shooting. It surrounded the village. One girl, a lady, sat beside me, and I was holding my child. The lady's leg was shot. The bullet did not touch me. It just tore my clothes, 
and they, the Japanese military, took all of the people to the school ground and took the American flag down and burned it up, and they put the other flag up. This testimony comes from George Curden of Atka, given in 1981. Atka was bombed. There are bomb holes still there existing there from the war. There is one right behind my house. Five places were bombed at Atka. This one comes from Vera Signarov of Atka, also given in 1981. I was only eight years old when they bombed Atka. We were in camp. When everybody left, we did not know about five or six families were left behind. After two or three days, we seen five Japanese planes bomb Atka. After two days, I think two American planes came to get us. We were the first ones to get to Dutch Harbor. This testimony comes from Martha Krukov from St. Paul, also given in 1981. They said we got to Dutch Harbor just in time, that the Japanese submarine was following the transport. We got there just in time and closed the anti-submarine gates. On June the 14th, St. Paul was visited by the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Onandaiga with orders to evacuate the entire population of the island. By June the 16th, the communities of St. Paul were evacuated and as was St. George with one suitcase per person, and no one was told where they were being sent. This apparently was because the captains feared the Japanese might find out, so they kept their locations a secret. By June the 24th, the communities of St. Paul and St. George would come ashore at Admiralty Island's Funter Bay, where they would be confined for the rest of World War II. The rest of the Aleut villages of Nikolski, Atkutan, Ashega, Baroka, Makushin were evacuated, totaling 160 Aleuts. They were all transported to Wrangell Institute in southeast Alaska. The Aleut resident at Unalaska took the Alaska steamship SS Alaska to Burnett Inlet Canary, southwest of Wrangell by July the 26th, and in late August, a smaller village community were sent to Ward Lake, known as CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps Camp, north of Ketchikan. The Alaskan press, known as Junya, reported this on June 26 of 1942. Title, Indians have been evacuated from far north. 535 Aleut Indians have arrived safely in southeast Alaska from the Privilov Islands and Atka. It has been learned in Junya from reliable sources. They were transported in eight days' time from the western war area of the territory and arrived in the Chatham Straits district without possessions excepting the clothing that they wore. The 450 natives evacuated from the Prisbalovs are to be quartered at an unused canary building at Funter Bay. There are empty houses and a dormitory for men at this locality. 85 Atka people have taken living quarters at an abandoned saltery at Kilisano. All in all, 881 Aleuts were forcibly relocated and interned in unsanitary camps in southeast Alaska throughout World War II. They were forced to live in abandoned caneries, a herring saltery, an old gold mine facility that had no plumbing, electricity, or toilets. They had little potable water, no warm clothing, and subpar food. 
nearly 10% of the Aleuts would die in these camps. Many of the Aleuts struggled with unfamiliar landscapes. The Aleutians are barren, treeless islands, and the large trees in Alaska represented a strangeness and terror for the Aleuts. Many Aleuts felt claustrophobic and depressed by the new environment. U.S. officials threatened male Aleuts if they did not volunteer to harvest fur seals for the war effort, they would never be allowed to go home again. You see, in a place like the Pribilov Islands, by international treaty, only native Pribilovians could harvest fur seals. The Aleuts were told the furs would be made into liners for aviation jackets and helmets for American pilots and bomber crews, which was a lie. The men spent the summer sealing season on the tiny Pribilov Islands clubbing over 125,000 seals. The government sold the furs to the Folk Fur Company of St. Louis for a whopping $1.5 million in profit, all of which went straight into the government's coffers. This was government-run extortion of a native population. It was a sad and very little talked about affair. Both the Japanese and the Americans interned the Aleut people. Now, after the midway operation was over, the Japanese tried their best to conceal the loss from their public. In fact, a lot of the Japanese propaganda tried to spin it all as a victory, displaying the attack on Dutch Harbor as a great triumph. Notably, Rear Admiral Tulsa Tanetsuyugi wrote some bombastic articles for popular newspapers at the time. Now that America's northern attack route against our country and the most important enemy base in the Pacific Ocean has been crushed by the Imperial Navy in the recent battles of Dutch Harbor and Midway, Japan can now concentrate on attacking the mainland of the United States. Yet it was true that the Japanese had managed to secure a foothold in North America, and this did cause great concern. But Buckner tried to lift the American people up with his famous statement, If the Japanese come, they may get a foothold, but it would be their children who get as far as Anchorage, and their grandchildren will make it to the States, and by then, they'll all be American citizens anyway. With the Japanese building up in Attu and Kiska, it was now up to Buckner, Theobald and Butler to plan the reconquest of the Aleutians. What would occur was dubbed the Thousand Mile War, quite a fitting title. It would last over 11 months, a grim, long-range air and sea war of attrition. The Americans would launch over a dozen air raids over Kiska in the month of June alone including a particularly nasty one called the Three-Day Kiska Blitz. Furthermore, on June the 20th, U.S. intelligence would detect Kakuta's carrier force of Zoiho and Zukaku re-entering the Bering Sea, prompting them to believe the Japanese were going to invade Alaska. This would lead to Operation Bingo, the first of many mass airlifts in American history. Over 140 cargo planes would reinforce Alaska using 46 seized civilian aircraft. Buckner was going to go buckwild protecting Alaska. I would like to take this time to remind all of you this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. 
Over there you can find a series on General Rupertus during the Pacific War. Check it out, it mean a lot to me. Yes, the Battle of Midway was a colossal mess for the Japanese. And even a small group of aboriginal peoples in the Aleutian Islands would face the horrors of war from the Japanese and Americans, sadly enough. The battle for Alaska had just begun, and America is beginning to go on the offensive. 